Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about an absolutely fascinating article that I read earlier today uh, that came out a couple days ago. That is an interview uh, with Amy Hennig, uh, who is uh, formerly of Naughty Dog, worked at Visceral and Electronic Arts for a short time, uh, but really had some very interesting things to say about the way she sees the structure of the industry and the way she sees that structure moving forward, which I think is of particular importance in the last three to six months where we have seen so many layoffs, so many changes, so many structural changes in these huge publishers. Uh, We just saw very recently Activision lay off 800 people. We've seen studios shut down, including... Uh, Amy Hennig's Visceral, which was closed after it uh, failed to get a Star Wars game to market and Electronic Arts shut them down. And I think when you have the perspective of someone who has this many years in the video game industry, uh, I think it's worthwhile to take a listen to. And I think she says a lot of interesting things. So I want to talk about that on today's episode. But first, if you're not familiar with Amy Amy Hennig, I wanted to bring up her Wikipedia entry because she really has been involved uh, in some of the most... Uh, story-rich, narrative-driven video games uh, that the industry has put out in at least the last 20 years, and in particular, two specific series that I wanted to focus on, and those are uh, Legacy of Kane, uh, the Legacy of Kane series, Soul Reaver, uh, Legacy of Kane Defiance, uh, and the Uncharted series, which of course came to prominence in the PlayStation 3 era and continued on in the PlayStation 4 era. Uh, she was the main writer. She was the director uh, and writer of these various video games, and I am personally very appreciative of that uh, because I, I have always seen video games and interactive entertainment uh, medium in general as a place where you really can tell very effective, very interesting stories, uh, when a lot of people don't necessarily see that and don't see that possibility in video games or hadn't in the past. Certainly when we're looking at these dates here, you see Legacy of Kane, where she did the design management uh, as her official title at Crystal Dynamics, is 1996. I don't think of that necessarily as a very long time ago, but it obviously is a pretty long time ago at this point. Uh, And Blood Omen Legacy of Kane uh, was one of those games that you could point to and say, hey, look, look at this thing. It's really trying to tell an interesting story. It's trying to tell a narrative that maybe you don't get in different medium. And, and that's giving you the choice between good and evil. That's giving you the chance to save the world or end it. And that's doing it with great writing and with uh, a lot more possibility than you had seen in just a, a few short years before. You know, you're looking at 1996. You're not so far separated, really, from Super Mario Brothers at that point in time. And, and so to have that kind of develop out of uh, the, the nascent video game industry was a great thing to see, uh, and certainly a great thing that I enjoyed. This continued on with Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver, uh, which was actually the first time that Amy Hennig's name came to uh, my uh, mind 
insofar as knowing the people behind the games, and, and that was a name that jumped out uh, because she was responsible for one of the worst cliffhangers of all time in video games. If you haven't played Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver, uh, my understanding is that uh, either the budget or the logistics at the studio dictated that they essentially split it in half. Uh, and so the end of Soul Reaver, uh, which is an entire game about pursuing the uh, the Cain the from the legacy of Cain, uh, ends essentially with jumping through a portal uh, and a short poem and cuts to credits. Uh, it's perhaps a little bit more uh, welcome in today's day and age where we have that high level of serialization in the products that we consume, uh, but it wasn't expected when that game came out. And so I immediately, after finishing that game, wanted to figure out who had done this dastardly deed and not finished the game uh, and denied us that conclusion. And it, of course, was Amy Hennig, who's listed here as director, producer, and writer. Now, it's been a number of years since then, so I think all has been forgiven. She has obviously put together a really, really good list of fantastically written games, fantastically written characters, and has been a boon to the industry, an industry that she is at least, I think, putting one one foot out of after having a tumultuous last five years. And if you look at her history, it's really hard to blame her for that. Uh, she left uh, Naughty Dog, it says here, in 2014 after there was some political disagreements on the direction of Uncharted 4 uh, after the success of Last of Us. Uh, so she leaves during that time. She gets hired by Visceral to do the Star Wars game. In 2017, EA announces it's closing Visceral, and Amy Hennig really doesn't have any place to go at Electronic Arts. So it says here she announced the following June that she had left EA and started a small studio to explore options involving virtual reality games. Uh, but that's really the last we have heard from her in a professional capacity until this interview uh, that I found so interesting. So with that as the background, uh, this person is very accomplished, has done a, a great deal of work in the game industry, is someone that I personally uh, am very thankful for having participated in the industry. She had a lot of things to say about the current structure of the industry. And so without further ado, let's take a look at this gamesindustry.biz article. Hennig, things are clearly not working the way they used to. Uncharted creative director says mass layoffs, a red flag that AAA development must change. Shift to outsourcing feels inevitable. And so this is an article that is an interview with Amy Hennig. It says, uh, accepting an honor at last month's Dice Summit in, uh, Dice Summit in Las Vegas. Uh, Hennig says there is at least one constant in game development, namely human nature. In her estimation, the big challenge any team faces will stem from human beings being human beings. And I think that's absolutely the truth. When we talk about any kind of creative endeavor, when, when we talk about any kind of project management, a complicated negotiation, a contract uh, negotiation that involves a number of associates and teams of law firms, whatever it is that you do, certainly the nature of the thing doesn't change the nature of people being human beings. And I think that's an important thing to remember when you're structuring organizations. That's certainly something that I talk about with my clients at length, which is, hey, you know, you're going to put together this management for this limited liability company. You're going to be putting together the officer list for this corporation. You're figuring out who to sell shares to. Whatever it is that you're doing to organize, you have to remember that everybody is going to have their own opinion as to how things move forward. Everybody's going to have their own flaws, their own uh, strengths. Uh, and you have to try to manage your organizational structure around that. And I think what we'll see in this article is that Amy Hennig suggests that the video game industry has not quite gotten its organizational structure ducks in a row, uh, which is really no surprise insofar as how immature the industry is. And we say that uh, even though it's decades old now, it's not a century old. Uh, and so 
I think it is useful to kind of always look to uh, the movie studios, the television studios, the other kind of cultural reference points that have solved some of these issues. Obviously, making a video game, programming software, having those kinds of things need to get created to have your product reach the finish line is different than producing a TV show, producing a a movie, Uh, but they are of a similar quality. And I think one of the things that the video game industry can do is take a look at that model and say, okay, how can we adapt some of what's over there over here and what doesn't make sense over there that we don't need over here? And so she, so she continues, what doesn't change is the challenge of trying to do a creative endeavor with a group of human beings and that only gets more complicated as the teams have gotten bigger and bigger. So we all have the same flaws we have as human beings and then it's amplified by having a 300-person team versus a 10-person team. She's really commenting here and will continue to comment here as the article and interview goes on on the fact that when she started, teams were much smaller. And there is an absolutely known uh, issue, known threshold in terms of growing a company about how things get much more complicated in terms of communications, how many more managers you need, how many more production people you need in order to keep communications streamlined when you move forward with additional people, that it's very different for a startup to have four founders than to have 15. And it's very different when you get up to 25 employees uh, versus 10. And that gets exponentially more so when you move up from 25 to 50 to 100 to 300. You might have those processes in place to streamline some of the production mechanisms as between, say, teams of five and teams of 10. But it gets harder and harder and harder the more people you have involved in an endeavor because you need to keep people rowing in the same direction. And so I look at this from the outside, having not made a video game at this size myself and not been involved in these kinds of productions and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that when you go from these 10 person, these 15 person teams that were intimate, that did have uh, certain qualities of the people that needed to be involved, those qualities necessarily have to change in a different environment like a 300 person team. Uh, And so the, the industry is still kind of dealing with that when you talk about developing all these assets, making these huge Assassin's Creed games, making these huge Red Dead Redemption 2 games, whatever it might be, that it involves so many people putting so much effort in, it becomes harder and harder to steer the ship. Uh, and I think that's that's what you're seeing here to some extent, as well as, in general, a lot of mismanagement for dealing with uh, production pipelines and moving on to the next asset and, and so forth and so on. Uh, Amy Hennig goes on to say, I personally needed a break from it, talking about her leaving. But in that break, it's been an opportunity to say, I'm not even sure it makes sense to do it that way in those huge teams. I think we keep doing it that way because we have these established companies and teams, and that's a resource, an asset you don't want to just throw away. But on the other hand, we're seeing news stories left and right where developers are folding and publishers are laying off hundreds of people. It feels like something feels inevitable because the cost of development and keeping all these people on staff, especially in expensive areas, just doesn't feel sustainable. And she goes on to say, I feel like there are all these red flags, canary in the mind moments where things are clearly not working the way they used to or not working. And I think stepping back for a moment from her interview, which I think is already making good points, I think the concept that if you've got an industry that has all these layoffs, that has these companies kind of rise and fall and all what we might call churn of these jobs, you are running the risk of having your primary asset, the people that are involved in making these games that have gone to school to learn how to program, to learn how to make art, to learn how to make music, whatever it is they're doing. 
if they have to go through one or two or three kinds of layoffs or churns or or purchases, mergers, acquisitions, uh, combinations, consolidations over the course of time, that takes a toll, especially if it involves moving, especially if it involves being fired and not knowing where you're going to go. Uh, and to the extent that people want to avoid that toll, that churn, if they have to work more than they would otherwise be comfortable with, that that is in some fashion unfair, then you start to get what we're seeing in the video game industry, which is a lot of people deciding that, that games are a problematic course to take, that they should be, if they're software programmers, looking at serious work, uh, looking at work outside of the, the games and entertainment industry. And that's a problem in and of itself. And it's a problem that has a long tail. It's not one that would necessarily pop up immediately. Uh, it would be one that takes the course of a decade or so to really show. Uh, and I think video games are always going to be a little bit of a rock star type industry in so far as they're always going to be attractive. The things you like to do as entertainment are always going to be attractive to a lot of folks to try to pursue as a career because you find so much joy in that. It's a passion. It's a hobby. It's something that you love. And you think to yourself, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that thing that I love all day, every day and, and do that work? I can tell you a brief story uh, that my brother has given me uh, whenever we're chatting on the phone. He's in video game development. He works for uh, an Activision subsidiary called High Moon, High Moon Studios, I believe. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we joke about is I'll often ask him to get online or, or, or game with me in some fashion. And, and one of the things he, he often says is, oh, I don't feel like it. Uh, I've, I've done that all day, essentially. And it's really an interesting thing. And it's, it's one that makes a lot of sense to me insofar as when you've been uh, knee deep in code all day, figuring out game design elements, thinking about how uh, various people are going to see around corners or what have you, uh, you're not that enticed to do it again in your off hours, which isn't to say he's not a big gamer. He still plays a lot of stuff. He's still a great guy. We still play very often. Uh, but sometimes he just says, hey, I don't want to bring my work home with me. And we say, okay. Uh, and so I do think it's one of those things where if you add on to that fact that making making your your passion, your fun, your hobby, your enjoyment, your work is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. If you add on to that unknown numbers of layoffs, unknown numbers of uh, mergers and acquisitions and churn and potentially unpaid overtime and all this kind of just overall stress level with perhaps limited ability to advance depending on the structure of the organization together with very high costs of living as most of these studios, at least in the, in the United States, are on the coasts uh, in various respect, then you've got an issue with the, the labor pool, the labor force that you're going to have fueling your industry in the years to come. Uh, now, going on with this uh, interview, Amy Hennig has something to say about that. She sees it going in a different direction from really the increasing size of these game companies and, and having all these people on staff as employees. Uh, this article says, as for what might work, Hennig looks to the TV and film industries as a model that makes some sense as it relies less on in-house production and more on heavy use of external contractors. Obviously, that would require a big sea change in the industry, probably towards unionization too, but you would have a lot more external partners or freelance developers as part of a team. Do more things as distributed development rather than have everything in-house, Henning says. It would allow for a lot more flexibility rather than feeling that constant pressure, that churn of salaries. As I think it would allow us a little more downtime too. A lot of what we talk about with crunch pressure is not just the ambition of the titles. It's also just the fact that these people are employees. So we said, thank God, when DLC became a thing, because there might be this huge dip of downtime where you might need only 10 people, but you have 300. So what are you going to do? They're employees. 
Now we can shuffle those people onto DLC content, but even then that creates this crunch churn on the staff. In other words, people are always working to finish some product by some deadline, and that creates its own stresses and anxieties within the video game sphere. So DLC keeps these people employed, which is a good thing, but it also didn't do much to decrease their stress level, where we might have seen in the past shipping a game and then taking a period of time to refresh your brains, refresh your soul. Uh, you're not necessarily seeing that to the same extent as far as Ms. Hennig says here. And I think that's an interesting part of this whole thing. Certainly with respect to specialization, that is something I can absolutely relate to. I get no end of calls asking me to litigate a speeding ticket or help get somebody out of jail after a DWI or what have you. Uh, and one of the things I always have to tell people is that I'm not a litigator, which people find interesting. It says, you're a lawyer. What, what do you mean you're not a litigator? Uh, and that's just not what I do. I help businesses form. I help them get funded. I help them conduct transactions, work with their employees, their consultants, figuring out what that indemnification provision says and how we need to change it, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't take that to court if there's a breach or a dispute. I don't take uh, criminals to court. I don't defend criminals. And so if you're outside of the law and order spectrum, uh, a lot of people don't know what to do with you. And that's just the two big buckets of law. Even within the transactional side, while I touch real estate, I don't do a ton of it. Uh, and while I uh, do a lot of venture capital, a lot of people don't do that. Uh, and so you have these specializations even within the field of law. And I think within all fields that we see in kind of the 21st century, you have these specializations. One of the things that comes with specialization is the ability of these organizations to do a lot more work because they can do it uh, with people that are dedicated to specific tasks. They can do it at a higher level of expertise. But for these specialists, it creates a kind of uh, existential crisis and, uh, on occasion, especially if there's a downturn in the need for their specialty. Uh, and so you see somebody that has this very specific talent, this very specific skill set. And if, let's say, a company is making a software product and they make it that needs this skill set and then they announce the next one that's going to take them five years and all of a sudden it doesn't need that skill set, well, then that specialist has a problem. And I think it makes a lot of sense when we look at what Amy Hennig is saying here to look at outsourcing, especially with specialist areas, and say, isn't it better for a company to specialize in... Uh, light diffusion in underwater scenes to work with the seven games that are working on that for the next two years and then move on to the seven that announce that they're going to be working with that for the years after that, then essentially have to figure out, populate that role on an, uh, on an ongoing basis at a video game company that might need that for one game and not need it for the next. And shouldn't it be a, a better, more organized, more stable environment if you have these companies that focus on these specialties and that these other companies, the video game creatives, essentially outsource the actual nuts and bolts work to, uh, which mirrors to some extent what you see in movies and, and, and television studios. If you watch, say, the credits to uh, Infinity War or Aquaman, pay a special attention to looking at how the visual effects are organized uh, because there were, I, I believe my wife and I watched Aquaman this last weekend. I think we counted 19 visual effects houses that were doing various different things uh, within the, the scope of the movie. That's obviously a, a very visual effects intensive film. But it just goes to show you, to the extent that you can break off a piece of your film and hand it off to someone that knows what they're doing with respect to any specific visual effect, uh, that helps get your film across the finish line uh, while still allowing your, your movie studio to either work on Aquaman or work on whatever the next thing is that requires people that know how to move cameras and know how to write scripts and know how to direct scenes rather than know how to animate underwater seahorses. And it makes a lot of sense to think about video games in the same way if you talk about these kinds of specialist areas. 
Amy Hennig goes on in this interview to say, this is all speculative because we're still living in a world where big companies have these giant staffs. Uh, and more and more, particularly for art, visual effects and things like that, we are working with external vendors a lot. It wouldn't be possible to make these big, impressive games if we weren't. So it feels like there's already a move in that direction. Whether it just becomes that we still have big teams and more external partners, or smaller teams and more things are externalized, remains to be seen. And I found this interesting because I didn't realize personally exactly the extent to which kind of outsourcing had already taken over the video game industry. So I did a little looking, I did a little background research uh, in terms of looking at this issue. And one of the things I found was an absolutely fascinating article from a site called The Outline, which I'm going to uh, link over to now. And it is called The Universe Has Been Outsourced, The Unseen Labor Behind the Video Game Industry's Biggest Titles. Uh, and it goes on to talk about a very specific company called Virtuous Limited, uh, which is a Chinese company. Uh, but one of the things I found in this article, and I do recommend reading it, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's certainly fascinating for those of you involved directly in the video game industry, because it does discuss how much of this is being outsourced, particularly overseas. And I think that's a fascinating thing uh, that makes a lot of sense in terms of how the organization of the industry is structured, uh, but maybe does hurt or depress the overall kind of salary levels and opportunities for advancement and kind of how good this looks as a career for someone in the United States, for instance. Uh, but what I wanted to really focus on here in this article is this paragraph that talks about how things have advanced. Now, I think this article is from 2018. So even now, this is a little bit uh, out of date and probably has advanced further from here. In many cases, outsourcing companies have grown even bigger than the clients who hire them. Horizons developer Guerrilla Games has around 270 employees in its Amsterdam offices. By comparison, Virtuous has 1,300 employees spread across 11 offices in eight countries. A 2001 study found outsourcing contracts were too small and haphazard to measure. But by 2006, 40% of game studios were using outsourcers for background or environmental art. In 2008, an anonymous poll of 200 major video game studios found that 86% relied on outsourcing for some aspect of development. Today, the practice is so common that many game studios created full-time coordinator positions to manage outsourcing. In the credits for Horizon, head of outsourcing Anton Weigert appears in the first three minutes of the 34-minute credit sequence. Outsourcing coordinators are used by Bethesda, which makes Fallout 4 and The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, and PopCap Games, which makes mobile games like Plants vs. Zombies and Bejeweled. So we see in that provision something that I didn't even personally realize, which is just how much these companies are using outsourcing already. That anonymous poll from a decade ago suggested that video game studios were already using outsourcing for 86% of them. And so I imagine that that number has only gotten higher because it makes so much sense. We talk a lot on this channel about fiduciary duty and what obligations management and officers and boards have to maximize the potential investment return uh, for their stockholders and for their other investors. Uh, but certainly outsourcing to the extent it's trustworthy, to the extent that you can get a good product at a lower price uh, from these companies makes so much sense for the video game industry that it's, it, it's really impossible to believe that more and more studios haven't adopted this approach. And what that approach basically means for the video game industry right now is something that is an open question and it's something that Amy Hennig is raising in this article and it's why it's so interesting, which is 
you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be overseas outsourcing for this to make sense. Yes, you get that immediate kind of uh, just dollar for dollar cash savings, but it can make sense even for highly expensive United States kinds of folks that are doing uh, art direction or programming or what have you. If it if it allows for specialization, if it allows for a house to just focus on skin textures and you know you can get the best skin textures from that company, that might be the way the industry winds up being organized in the not too distant future. And I find that endlessly fascinating. Going back to her interview, we have a few other thoughts from her uh, that I think are, are also pretty useful. Um, she says, these days, a major studio closure for a AAA publisher typically makes for a more dramatic and headline-worthy number of lost jobs. I'm sorry, this is from the article author, because they're comparing what Amy Hennig is saying about layoffs to the fact that she says that in EA, the first time in 1995, she was laid off because it shut down the studio she was working at. She estimates it was less than 40 people at the time. And then they're comparing that to what Activision just did with 800 people and Visceral losing uh, their people and how it's just a much bigger endeavor now. Video games are a bigger industry uh, than that used to be. Uh, and, and she goes on to talk about the specialization that we started out talking about, which she says, one of the things that's changed is specialization. Now you've got character artists who do nothing but skin textures, shaders, or something like that. And somebody else does the actual model. Somebody else rigs it. Somebody else animates that alone creates a certain amount of bloat in your staff because you have so many specialists now instead of generalists. And those are the kinds of skills that would normally be outsourced because they're so specialized. You don't need that person working full-time every day, all year long. That's a shame because I don't want to see people lose their jobs. And I think there's a number of ways the industry could go from here, and it's a fascinating thing to see. I certainly think when we look at the articles that come out about Activision or about Visceral or about any other company that's going through these kinds of extended layoffs, a number of which have happened in the very, very recent past, I think it is fair to say there is something fundamentally amiss with how these things were organized, how they were managed in the last, say, five kinds of fiscal years. And I think there is going to be a sea change of some kind, whether or not that's what uh, Ms. Hennig suggests, which is going to be kind of a specialization outsourcing uh, with teams that are kind of locked into the creative aspects of the video game studios that essentially uh, a contract out for actually making their vision come to life uh, remains to be seen. But I certainly think it makes a lot of sense. And I am loath to discount the opinion of someone who has been involved in making video games for so long. So I think it, it certainly is something that we should think about as potential, uh, that, uh, that the video game industry might well look like essentially a writing and directing house uh, of a small group that can be managed easier and more inexpensively that is outsourcing essentially all of the specialist tasks, or at least a significant amount of the specialist tasks, to folks that do that kind of thing every day and are working on 20 or 30 games at one time. And I think that's a very interesting thing to think about because it has all sorts of implications for whether or not video gaming makes a, a significant career choice for somebody that's maybe graduating in 2025 or 2030 and whether or not it makes sense for them to get involved in this thing they love so much on a professional basis or whether they should move on to a different, more greener pastures. And I think that's very interesting. For me, I tend to think it's likely to be somewhere in the middle. I think that team sizes are going to be reduced I think especially when you look at the kinds of layoffs that Activision had where they did lay off 800 people, primarily as we understand it, as at least they have described it in their stockholder and investor uh, disclosures, uh, people that were not related directly with kind of the coding and asset creation for video games, but instead kind of the more contextual items, whether that's esports leagues, whether that's social media, things of that nature. And I think certainly when you think about that, 
it makes sense if we're going to specialize on an individual basis for these studios, for these publishers to individualize on an organizational basis to, to essentially specialize the fact that they make video games over and above the fact that they make websites or that they coordinate on Twitter or that they run sports leagues or things of that nature. Uh, much like we saw uh, decades ago with respect to consolidation, where you had oil companies own movie studios and vice versa. Uh, we see less of that today, although it's not gone completely, uh, because there is this kind of profitability. There is this return on investment that can be realized with knowing exactly how to do something and doing it well. And what you saw in those Activision statements that they made to investors was, hey, we don't like these layoffs. It's 8% of our workforce, but we think that we need to essentially change our form change our organizational structure to be more directly focused on bringing video games to market and not all the ancillary stuff. And I think that is the kind of thing that you see Amy Hennig describing here, which is these companies essentially shucking off these other responsibilities that they've had and trying to focus more specifically on what makes them special. Why are their video games good when others might not be? And I think that that does live, to the extent it lives at all, in very specific kinds of art whether that's writing or direction or the actual art being created, I think it does mean that you could potentially run a company in the video game industry with a smaller team with a lot of help from outsource studios and with people in that smaller team that are managing those relationships. Because a lot of the stuff, a lot of the scandals that we've seen in video games or movies or television uh, in the recent past have been an outsourcer somehow sneaking in something that maybe doesn't look very good uh, for the, the company that it's making it. And so I think that is going to be a continuing story. We talk a lot about continuing stories on this channel, but certainly the effect of outsourcers on the industry, what the industry winds up looking like in this year and next year and the next five years is something to pay attention to. And I highly, highly recommend checking out that Amy Hennig interview for yourself if you're at all interested in this kind of thing. I think it has tremendous insight as to what she has seen in the current industry, what the, what the industry might look like in the future. Uh, and while I think it's likely to be middle-sized teams with outsourcing rather than the large teams we see today or the small teams that maybe Ms. Henning would prefer, I do think there is going to be change here because, frankly, I look at the industry right now and I don't think it can survive doing what it's doing right now with this churn and this rapid burnout with so many bright stars, so many good people that just want to make good video games. Uh, and so that's my two cents. Uh, if you like this video, please do like it. Please subscribe to this channel. We talk a lot about these kinds of things, whether it's in respect of information technology or software or video games directly. Uh, virtual legality is all about talking about the things that kind of catch my eye from a business and law perspective. And certainly I talk a lot about the video game industry uh, where thankfully I have been able to uh, tangentially relate to my passion uh, for video games with a number of clients and with a lot of the, the work that I do helping form them and helping them get funded. Uh, and so I get to enjoy the industry a little bit from afar and have a channel like this one uh, while not going through the same issues that I know so many people involved in the industry have to go through on a regular basis. And I very much hope they don't have to go through uh, as often uh, in the near future. Uh, but again, uh, if, you, uh, if you like this, please do like, please subscribe. Thank you so much for watching this on YouTube or for listening to it on a podcast, and I will catch you on the next Virtual Legality. <laughs>